Well, happy Easter. It's so terrific to see you and uh, to have a full house here and welcome to those who are online with us this morning as well. Uh, great to have you tuning in, although I could say to the camera, you're missing the party. This is where the party's happening. Uh, uh, welcome. If we've not met, I'm Joe Wiltshire. I'm the uh, senior minister here, been here since uh, 2000 and, or Christmas 2008 is when I started, uh, and just a pleasure to uh, be able to serve you in this way, uh, and if you've got questions about God, Christianity and stuff, that's what we're here for, to, to encourage each other to help work it all out. Now, the question I want to ask you this morning is, does it matter to you whether you're on right terms with God? Do you care? My sister has a phrase that she's used for years when you speak to her about certain issues that she's not interested in at all, and that phrase is care factor zero. You start talking about what's happened during the week, she just says care factor zero, which means shut up now, I don't want to hear about it. Uh, is your care factor zero when it comes to God? And if it's not zero, if you do care, do you know what to do about it? Uh, what, you know, or are you kind of lost going, I, I wish there was something, I hope that I can connect with him, but I don't sure what to do with it. Do you know what it means to be on right terms with him or how to make that a reality, how to do business with God? Now, I know there's a bunch of people here today who are completely sure of their standing with God and you're building on it and it's really wonderful, you're nurturing it, it's fantastic. But today, I guess, I, I want to encourage us all to be like that, to know the truth and to know him in your life, whether uh, you've never known him and been on right terms with him, whether you're not sure where you stand or whether circumstances in recent times have, have thrown you, uh, that thrown your confidence. Uh, what with COVID the last couple of years, that's uh, challenged a whole lot of people in their thinking either to or away from God uh, or with other circumstances. We've had a number of families in our church and community that have been bereaved recently and some are here this morning who are going through that grief. There's others struggling with cancer or have had illness in the family uh, and, uh, and you might be wondering, where's God? And, and you might have come here today going, well, I hope somehow I can connect with him but I'm not sure how to do that. Uh, um, it's all up in the air. But if it matters to you and you're not sure, I'm really glad you're here today because it's Good Friday. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> it's very good. And it seems to many in our community odd that it's called Good Friday. Uh, what's so good when you know that it's an event commemorating, even celebrating the brutalisation <clears throat> and execution of a man in very, very dark circumstances. We've just heard the tail end of it when he actually died, but the trial, the betrayal, the, the beatings, the crown of thorns on his head, like the people spat on him as he walked down the street, carrying the, own inst the instrument of his own execution. And, and not just any man, Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter by training, a, a teacher and healer by reputation, uh, a thorn in the side of the authorities uh, and the son of God, as it turns out, by nature, God become man. And particularly, you might wonder why it's so good, Good Friday, when you hear the question that's on Jesus' lips. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why have you abandoned me, God? It's the last words which Jesus ever speaks in the Gospel of Mark. We know he said other things then and later, according to the other biographers, but in Mark's Gospel, this is the last words of Jesus. And it just seems anything but good, doesn't it? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Uh, It's miserable. They're awful words. They're the pitiful cry of, of the wretched who's lost all hope. And, and they would be miserable if Jesus didn't know the answer to that question. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt abandoned at all. Uh, it's a terrible thing to go through. Uh, you think of the little child who's lost at MacArthur Square and just how awful they, they're feeling being abandoned in that moment, the tears, uh, the yelling out for mum. Um, but, I mean, that's resolved very quickly, often, Uh, But maybe you can remember friends dobbing you in for something that everyone was involved in but they left you holding the can uh, and you felt abandoned. Uh, Maybe you've been abandoned in other more serious ways, a broken engagement or being through the the terrible pain of being abandoned by a husband or a wife or a parent or a child even. Uh, Relationships change. But worse than any of those is to be abandoned by God, to be forsaken by God. Many people feel like they've been abandoned by God and it profoundly affects them. They go through some hard situation or circumstance and think that if God was really there, then this wouldn't have happened, it shouldn't have happened. Uh, the death of a loved one, the, a dreadful illness, financial ruin and hardship. Where, where is God in all that? Has he let us down? Has he gone somewhere? Has he abandoned us? But what if you really were abandoned by God, forsaken, not just feeling it, but God in reality had turned his back on you. What then? How awful would that be? And as we read through the account of Jesus' death, it's pretty easy to see why he called out in such anguish. He's the victim of gross miscarriage of justice. Uh, The trial was rigged, the the witnesses lied, the authorities bribed the witnesses, the, the charge against him was different between the two courts that he went to during the night. It was all very rushed kangaroo courts, multiple. He went to three different ones, two to the same one, uh, and kept getting shuffled around because no one wanted to deal with him. Uh, the Roman governor, who had the final say, even declared him innocent and wanted to let him go, but he caved in to mob rule as they chanted for the other guy, Barabbas, to be released uh, and they tur- he turned Jesus over to be crucified and released the known murderer instead. But I guess there have been many circumstances of innocent people who've been condemned to death over the years. What, what makes this any worse than those other ones? Well, the difference is that Jesus wasn't only innocent of the charge against him, he was completely innocent, he was sinless, perfect, You think about it, Jesus never committed an outward sin, he never stole anything, committed adultery, did anything like that, lied. Not an inward sin either. I mean, maybe you can avoid doing those ones and and be good, but inwardly, coveting, lust, deceitfulness, Jesus had none of that. He was never selfish, never greedy. More than that, every moment of every day, he fulfilled the law of God. He loved the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind and all his strength and he loved his neighbour as himself. 
How are you going to imagine someone like that? I mean, we might know nice people, but no one like that. And then this happens to him. Now, Mark's account of the crucifixion is, is the briefest of the four biographies of Jesus, the four Gospels. And instead of being comprehensive, what Mark wants to do is focus on the reactions of, of all the different people around to what was happening there as Jesus died on the cross, as he cried out this, this uh, God-forsaken cry. Uh, the soldiers who were there, what was Jesus to them? Well, he's just another criminal condemned to death. And they treat him the same as others. I think they even treat him worse because of the charges against him that he's the king of the Jews. Uh, They have an opportunity to poke fun at the expense of someone who's weak and powerless. They they dress him up in purple uh, robes and stick the crown of thorns on his head. They spit on him. It's an opportunity to make money. Uh, They gamble for his clothes and think who's going to get the trophy from, from today. And they do it right in front of him. The priests, well, they are the ones who had organised all this. What was Jesus to them? Well, he was an object of their gloating. They've won. After years of competition, after trying for months and months to get rid of Jesus, plotting, planning, manipulating, bribing, finally they've won. Or so they think. And they mock him for his seeming powerlessness They're the ones standing there saying, surely anyone with any power at all would use it to save himself. All that talk of Jesus about having authority and being the son of God. Well, look at you now, buddy. We knew you were lying all along. (laughs) Come down from the cross if you think you can save yourself. Even the thieves who were crucified with him because there was a a public ex- it was execution day and they, they did a bunch of them. They, they're there and they mock him from the other crosses either side. It's so callous, isn't it? Dying men have got nothing better to do with their time than mock the other dying men. You'd think they'd have enough on their own plate to worry about. And so for the people there around the cross, Jesus is used as an object of pleasure, an object of gloating, an object of entertainment. He's someone to lash out at. Now, not much has changed, has it? Jesus is still that. For some, Jesus is a way to sell merchandise and to make money. Lots of people are doing that. For some, he's uh, a source of cheap thrills. For many, he's an object of scorn. He's even a swear word to most people he's someone to lash out at if something's gone wrong and you could probably think through people who've got those reactions to him or had them in the past or or have them currently and, and maybe you're one of them but in the midst of all these different reactions that we're being told about the story's interrupted it's interrupted by jesus himself as he brings the focus back onto him as he asks this monumental question from the cross my god my god why have you forsaken me but it's also interrupted by god the father in response to that question there's an answer to that question in the passage now mark only records three statements by jesus after his trial begins 
But I think that only emphasises the few words he did include. And this final statement, the only words Jesus spoke from the cross according to Mark, as recorded by Mark, is momentous. It left such an impression on the crowds who were there that the exact words were recorded even in a foreign language. We're told in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sakbakthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Lots of people heard him say it and didn't know what he was saying. Uh, they thought he was crying out to Elijah. They, they just thought there's some foreigner speaking weird stuff. But he was saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hanging on the cross, the thing that fills Jesus' minds is not the concern about being mocked by everyone around. It's not the physical pain that he's going through, which would have been horrible. It's, well, it's the spiritual loneliness. It's weird. You watch the movie The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, who I know he's out of favour these days, but um, I think everyone feels sorry for Jesus because of the physical pain and everything he's going through, right? But, but for Jesus, the real issue is the spiritual one. His connection with his father that seems to be broken. He's not concerned about rejection by people. He's concerned about rejection by God. And because of who he is, Jesus doesn't just have a vague notion of God, an impersonal being who's out there somewhere, but he is, my God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Through all the darkness, through all the pain and suffering, he holds on to what he knows is true, that God is his God. And the reality is that Jesus had never known except anything except perfect love and communion with his heavenly father. He'd shared glory with him as God the Son. And yet what Jesus is saying here, well, he's really using the language that the Bible reserves for speaking about hell. Hell is where people are abandoned by God, where they are rejected by God, where they are forsaken by God. And Jesus is saying... At this moment, I am in hell. Not just it hurts, like lots of people in war say they're going through hell. He's actually in hell. He has been forsaken by God. Lots of people joke about hell. Why would you want to go to heaven with all those boring Christians? Uh, well, hell, yeah, they say hell's where the party's going to be. And I think people only say stupid things like that because they've never seen it. They've never been there. Jesus has he it wasn't after the cross it was on the cross and he cries out in that anguish my God my God why have you forsaken me now it's not that he doesn't know the answer to the question either some people reckon Jesus must have been surprised to find himself hanging there dying and he's going what I wasn't expecting this but that's not it He's chosen this path for himself. The disciples have warned him several times, if we go to Jerusalem, you're going to get killed and we're going to get killed with you. Right? And, so, and he, every time he said, well, we're going anyway. In fact, three times he told them in Mark's Gospel, in Mark 8, 9 and 10, that we are going there specifically so that this might happen, that the Son of Man might be rejected, be arrested, be beaten, spat upon, mocked and killed. He said a bit more, but we'll talk about that on Sunday. <laughs> um, so he knows this is what was expected. The being spat upon, being killed. He planned all this. But more than that, 
He's also chosen these words very, very carefully because they're actually the words of another man. Jesus is quoting someone from the cross. So what a weird thing to do. You're there being tortured and killed and you quote someone else. And he's quoting King David. King David, who was his distant ancestor. A thousand years before, King David wrote those very words in Psalm 22. They're the first words from Psalm 22. And he's not just crying out in pain and suffering. He is doing that, suffering horrible. But he's quoting scripture. Now, why would Jesus do that? Well, for a start, it's because he's calling attention to the fact that this has not just been his plan, it's been God's plan all along. Psalm 22, we just had it read, thanks Lauren, it was great, um, was, he gives the most accurate picture of all the Old Testament of Jesus' death. A thousand years before it happened, describes in detail down to the minute things, the piercing of his hands inside, to the, the gambling for his clothes, being surrounded by his enemies, uh, to the fact that none of the, his bones would be broken. They broke the other guy's legs, but they didn't break his legs. A thousand years before the crucifixion, God has David write down all of the details. It's all in God's plan. But secondly, he's quoting it because he knows that God's plan is going to result in glory. You, you come to the last four verses of Psalm 22. I don't know if you can find it there in the middle of the Bible or just listen along. It's got this horrible description of this guy being surrounded, murdered, people gambling for his clothes, stabbing him in the side, not breaking his bones. But the last four verses say this. All the ends of the earth will remember and they will turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you for kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules the nations. All who prosper on earth will lead and bow down. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him, even the one who cannot preserve his life. Their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They'll come and declare his righteousness to a people yet to be born. They'll declare what he has done. So somehow in God's plan, predicted a thousand years before, this suffering, this incredible punishment is going to result in the families of earth, of the nations, worshipping God. This event is going to be held for God's glory forever and ever. And so yes, Jesus crying out in anguish as he experiences God's hatred for sin as he's torn apart from his heavenly father, as he goes to hell there on the cross. And yet he knows the purpose of it all. And so his cry from the cross isn't a lack of faith in God. It, he has complete faith in God, even in the midst of the suffering, knowing that God is going to use this event for his own glory, the glory of his name forever. And two things happen at Jesus' death that Mark tells us about, to show us that God hasn't lost control and that he's at work and this will result in glory. Two acts of God, two miracles take place while Jesus is hanging here. The first one is darkness. Uh, it was spring in Palestine. There's little or no rain. Um, it's Passover, which is a lunar festival, which happens to be uh, full moon, so it's on the other side of the earth and on the cliffs. The sky is clear. Jesus was crucified at the third hour, that is at nine o'clock in the morning. Uh, 
And then at the sixth hour, at noon, suddenly darkness covers the land. A darkness which is so complete and which goes on for three hours. I don't know if you've been through one of the eclipses. It's like ten minutes, isn't it, when it's really dark. Um, three hours. The sun's at its zenith, but darkness covers the land. Something's going on here. And everyone who's standing there knows it. The second miracle is recorded in verse 38. He says that the, the temple, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now it's clearly a miracle because no one hangs out there and, and it's a heavy, heavy curtain. It's not your normal kind of flimsy, lacy one, you know, the, the light one. It's, it's a thick, heavy one and it's ripped in two beginning at the top and then tearing all the way down to the bottom. Why does God do that? I mean, what does that matter? Of all the things God could do while his son is dying, why, why rip some fabric? Uh, is it frustration? Is it, no, well, no, why? Why meddle with the drapery? Well, I don't know if you know anything about the temple that dominated Jerusalem's skyline in those days. Uh, the, the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall is still standing today, but been replaced by the the golden dome uh, there in jerusalem but there was this massive temple and and it had an outer court which uh, strictly speaking wasn't part of the temple it's kind of the grounds uh, that had a wall that said you'd entered the grounds uh, and anyone was welcome to go in there didn't matter if you were jew or a gentile anyone was welcome but then inside that there was a low stone wall about kind of waist height um, that separated it from another court and on it at frequent signs around it were signs posted forbidding any non-Jew to enter past this point on pain of death. It's a bit like a you know American ranch in Texas, you know, trespassers will be shot, you know, kind of everywhere. Uh, one was dug up recently. Uh, it reads, no foreigner may pass within the lattice and the wall around the sanctuary, whoever is caught, the guilt for the death which will follow will be his own. <laughs> there you go. There's, there's a nice threat, isn't it? Uh, trespassers will be shot. In other words, it's not that they'll be shot. They will die. And their death will be on their own head. Inside that wall was a courtyard where only the Jews could go. And inside that was another court again where only Jewish men could go. And inside that there was a sanctuary where only the priests could go. It was called the holy place. That's where the altar was for sacrifices and, and that famous seven-pronged candle, you know, uh, from Jewish traditions. Uh, and, and then there was this curtain, big, thick, heavy curtain that went from floor to ceiling, which separated another tiny room, a room uh, probably slightly bigger than you could just stretch out around. Uh, it was the most holy place, the holy of holies. It was the place where God was supposed to be, where he dwelt with his people. And only the high priest could go in there, and only then once a year, and only then after he had made sacrifices, first for himself, then for the nations, and then to cleanse the temple. And when he did go in, he would sprinkle the whole insides of the most holy place with blood. Like, 
he'd collect up a big vat of animal blood and just go and spray it round. That was what was in the middle where God lived. Blood on the walls. Some you know, years and years of doing the same thing. Just flicked around. In fact, the Old Testament law requires that nearly everything be cleansed by blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, we read in the scriptures. Now, why is that? It sounds pretty gory, doesn't it? You probably wouldn't want to go in that place if it stank of death. Well, it's because blood and death is God's punishment for sin in this world. When Adam was in the Garden of Eden, at the very start, everything was good. He said to him, you can, you can eat anything, you can do anything, except eat from that tree over there, the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. The day you eat of it, you will die. There's one thing you can't do, and death is the punishment for doing it. It's not because it's poisoned. It's because I will kill you. In Romans 6, verse 23, we read, the wages of sin is death. Death is what we earn. It's what we're owed as pay. And the only way a Jew could get out of it was for something else, uh, an animal, to die in their place. God takes sin that seriously. Either you're going to die for your sins or something's going to die for you. And so what you do is take a perfect spotless animal, in many cases a year-old lamb, to the priest as a substitute. You can read all the instructions for how it works in the book of Leviticus, uh, fun reading. Uh, it could be any sort of animal, depending on how rich you were, but most people took a lamb. And the priest would lay his head on the head of the lamb, which would symbolically transfer the guilt from you onto the animal. And then he'd slit its throat. It's gory stuff. And then he would pour out the blood from the slit throat into a bowl and catch it. Uh, and it stank in there. The stank of the blood of the thousands of animals who died there every day. And so there's this weird thing going on with the temple in Jerusalem. You see, the temple was a place of joy and hope because God dwelt with his people. God lives here. But it's also a reminder that people cannot come close to God because of sin. And everything about it said, keep out, you're not welcome, you cannot come in. And when, De when Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And it symbolically and, and, and spiritually and really opened the way into God's very presence. We now have direct access to our Father. That's what was happening as Jesus dies on the cross for us. On the cross, Jesus accepted our punishment for us. And so no longer do animals have to die in sacrifice day after day after day in, and with ritual killings, which never really worked anyway. The, I mean, the blood of lambs and goats and bulls can never take away sin. But Jesus' blood can, and it does. And as a result... The curtain of the temple was torn open and so direct fellowship with God is now possible. We can walk straight in to the presence of God. Doesn't matter to you whether you're on right terms with God. Do you care? Doesn't matter to you. I'll tell you what matters to God. That he would do this to his own dear son to make a relationship between you and him possible. 
The curtain was torn down the middle in an offer of unlimited access to God, of complete forgiveness, not based on our own merits, which we're not going to have anything to, any leg to stand on before him ourselves, but on the merit of the one who suffered for us, the Lord Jesus. And it matters so much to Jesus. He knew that's what he was coming here to do. That's why he kept going, even when the disciples said, you're an idiot, don't do it, you're going to die. That's why he said, this is what the plan is. He knew his life would be forfeit to save us, that he'd be under the heavy hand of God and bear that wrath, but he was willing. It was worth every ounce of pain and blood and the spiritual agony to do this, to bring you this offer of forgiveness and a fresh start with your maker. And it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, where you've been, whether you've been coming to this church for years or you've only just dropped here for the first time or you're watching online, uh, whether up to this point you've wanted God's offer of forgiveness or not, it extends to everyone. It's an offer. It even extends to those who were at the foot of the cross that day mocking him. And you might think, well, well, I can understand God wanting me, but them, <laughs> like, they're scumbags. <laughs> the soldiers, the commander of the outfit, the, the centurion who was overseeing it, upon seeing the darkness, seeing how Jesus responded to the outcry against him, seeing what happened, he concluded, surely this man was the son of God. A true believer? Can't be sure, but I think so. And certainly as you read the book of Acts and what happened in the months following this, many of the soldiers who were in Jerusalem at the time and some presumably who were there at the cross became Christians. The thieves, well Luke tells us that one of the thieves eventually turned to Jesus in the end and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It twigged. That's who this is. And that this was the doorway to Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus said, today, I tell you, you, you'll be with me in paradise. He welcomes him in, the same thief who mocked him only a few hours previously. And Jesus forgave him, gave him life. The priests, well, surely God wouldn't save them. Jesus' enemies, they're the ones who've organised this. But Acts 6 verse 7, which is only a few months later, tells us a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And as it was in first century Palestine, so it is today, God's offer of forgiveness through the blood of Jesus extends even to those who mock him, to those who consider him a madman, to those who consider him impotent and to everyone else. Because Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was forsaken on the cross, we never have to be. If we'll trust him, if we'll admit we need him and that we'll never make it without him, God will accept you. That's, that's what he's promised. That's what he was here to do and he's true to his word. I mentioned Romans 6 earlier, the wages of sin is death. It goes on straight afterwards to say the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's offering you life. He's asking you to be part of his family as his own precious child. The one who forgave the thief, who forgave the priest and the centurion, he can forgive you. 
But there's decisions that have to be made. Whether you're a businessman or woman who has to face deals all day long, you know you've got to make decisions. Uh, or maybe you're someone who just reads the, the Audi advertising and thinks, ooh, I want to walk up that middle aisle this week like I do every week. <laughs> I want to, but I don't. Because uh, I know I'll be very, very poor after that. <laughs> but you know, there's a decision that's got to be made in order for anything to happen. Well, here's a deal that you've either got to accept or reject. Are you going to do business with God? doesn't matter to you whether you're on right terms with him. Now, for some of you, your care factor might still be zero. You got dragged along here today and you couldn't care less uh, and you might walk away and say no to him. You can do that. You can say, so what, Jesus? God the Son died for me. I don't care. That, that's a decision you're welcome to make. It's foolish, it's irresponsible and in the end you're throwing your life away because there's, there's, there's no substitute for you if you won't take Jesus' offer. But be your own man, be your own woman if you want to be. Well, you might say, well, that's not me. I, I'm not that callous. <laughs> I, I do want to be on right terms with God, but, but is this really the way? I want to read the fine print first and make sure before I really commit. I, that's, that's great. That, that's okay. Um, it's important to know the details and to know this really happened, right? Particularly that he came back to life again, which we're talking about Sunday, before you commit yourself. But I would say people use that as an excuse, but don't put off investigating it. It's too important to leave on the back burner. And if you really do have questions, come and sort them through. That's why we're here. Uh, and, and we've got all sorts of things coming up this term uh, to help you work through the issues. The first one's this Thursday night coming, uh, God willing that the speaker gets over COVID that he's had. <laughs> um, What's the deal with the Bible? How do we know we've got the right books in there? Is it, you know, some people decided. How do we know we've got the right ones and this really is God's word? That's Thursday night. What more this term? But for most people I've met, the problem is not intellectual. It's not really a question of if it's true. It's fear. It's an unwillingness to give themselves body and soul to him. It's an unwillingness to trust him because... They don't know if that's going to be good. But can I say, who is more trustworthy than Jesus? Who's more selfless than Jesus? Who's got a greater character than Jesus? Truly, any, who has done anything for you that even rises close to the magnitude of what Jesus has done for you? Who loves you that much that they would die for you? I give you a promise today. Hey, all of your sin can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. All of your life can be redeemed in Jesus Christ. All of your days transformed by Jesus Christ. All of your eternity can be with Jesus Christ. It really comes down to getting straight with him today. I can urge, I can cajole, I can beg, I can plead, but ultimately it comes down to you doing business with Jesus. He loves you so much. He died for you. And he's calling you to respond to him in love, with trust, with belief. He gave his life for you. In fact, that's why he's brought you here today. It's really a matter of turning to him and saying, I'm yours. Take me. It doesn't have to be specific words. You might even begin, God, I don't know what to say. I just know I want what Jesus is offering but we're going to pray 
a prayer of confession that's going to come up on the screen uh, together, which really just acknowledges where we stand. It's part of the communion service. We're having communion later on anyway. But it's a, it's a great way of saying, you know what? I know I need Jesus to forgive me, and I know he's done it. I can't earn it on my own. And so I invite you to pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love, but we have gone our own way and rejected your will for our lives. We are sorry for our sins and turn away from them. For the sake of your Son who died for us, forgive us, cleanse us and change us. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to live for you and to please you in every way. In the glory of your Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And I want to say, if you've prayed that today and you meant it in your heart, uh, God's good for his word. That's why Jesus died on the cross, to bring you that forgiveness and cleansing. He, he, he forgives uh, and he wants to give you strength today and there's a whole new life to work out. And so it would be really great, I mean, to communicate about that at the end of all the pews, uh, uh, in, in the aisle side, there are communication cards where you can tell us you've been today, that uh, whether you've, you've prayed to become a Christian or whether you've been one a long time or you've got questions that you want to ask and, and have personally answered or prayer points, you can fill those in and stick them in the offertory box up there. You'll see on the table there's a box of offertory. Because of COVID, we're not passing the plate at all. Put it in the box on your way in or out.